Have you noticed that politicians struggle to enact the things they run on? That regardless of who wins elections, lawmakers find they cannot pass whatever legislation they like. They find themselves bound by what is popular or at least their sense of it. They can only enact things within a narrow set of ideas, and that range is called the Overton Window. And on the Overton Window podcast, we look at issues around the country and talk to the people who change what is politically possible. Now, too many of our fellow citizens treat their political opponents as barriers to be overcome rather than neighbors to be persuaded. Alexander Hudson wants us to better respect the dignity inherent in others, and she's got a new book, The Soul of Civility, where she shares the lessons learned from all around the world and across time on civility. Lexi, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, James. What is civility to you? Civility is the bare minimum of respect that we are owed and owe to others by virtue of our shared humanity. And civility, as I argue throughout the book, is distinct from mere politeness. We often hear people using them interchangeably, um, either saying we need more civility or less civility in our public life, less civility and politeness. But they're, it's essential, I think, that we disambiguate these ideas. So civility is... Uh, or I'll start with politeness. Politeness is is manners, it's etiquette, it's external, whereas civility is internal. It's a disposition of the heart. It's a way of seeing others as our moral equals who are worthy of a bare minimum of respect just by virtue of our shared humanity and common dignity as human, human beings. And that crucially, sometimes actually respecting others requires being impolite, engaging in robust debate, telling hard truths, maybe even protest sometimes as the situation calls for it. So civility and politeness, very different things. And we need to disambiguate them in order order to better understand what are the modes of conduct we want more of and less of in our society today. Now, you write that uh, we have within ourselves a selfish side and a social side, and these sides are often in, in, in conflict. What is it about politics that appeals to our selfish side? It's a great it's a great question. So part of my story is that I um, was I worked in federal government and I saw the 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 depths and darkness of our division and our divided moment. And uh, I wanted to be more part of the solution, a greater part of the solution than how I felt uh, in government. And so left and, and started uh, working on this book and, and um, moved to Indiana, Indianapolis, Indiana, as part of um, just my attempt to escape the toxicity and division in, in our world today and in, in government. And in fact, I, I took a job in Indiana state government when I first moved to Indiana, where my husband's from originally. And I realized that there were the same dynamics of, of division and toxicity that I had um, experienced in in. Uh, in DC. And so I um, part of my argument in this book is that this is a timeless problem, that there is, um, it's really easy to feel like our own moment is the most divided. Um, and um, But it, this is not an America problem, not a modernity problem. It's a time, timeless human problem. And that the human condition is the human condition, doesn't matter what place we're in, what time, um, what era we're in, uh, what vocation we're in, that yes, you know, it's easy to point fingers at our politicians and our public leaders and blame bureaucrats, um, but there are the same dynamics are at play. You know, in classrooms, in in, in generic office context, in our in our city neighborhoods, that the human condition, the, the self love and the social in our nature plays out in in all of these spheres 
equally. So I, I'm very skeptical of painting any vocation with a, with a broad brush in that way. Oh, fair enough. Fair enough. But I do think, I do like that point that you made that, you know, things feel different this time. And so therefore we need to throw uh, common respect out, uh, out, uh, out out the window, um, you know, we have to play by different rules. It kind of reminds me of the the, the scent or the, the thought, um, when you're tempted to fight fire with fire, rem, uh, remember that firefighters usually use water. Exactly, exactly. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a great, a great point that, uh, you know, one argument I make in the book is that you know, we hear this, we hear a lot of this high stakes mentality that um, we have to be willing to take the gloves off and do whatever is necessary to get the other side. And yet, um, what we don't appreciate is that when we hurt others, we hurt ourselves too. When we are malicious and cruel and, and, and debase them, that we dehumanize them but also ourselves. And I get this idea from Socrates, who also influenced Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And one thing Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said was that um, he, he was talking about segregation. He said segregation is wrong because it degrades human personality, human dignity. And that segregation, it doesn't just hurt the segregated. Of course, it does by giving them a false sense of inferiority, but it also hurts the segregator it deforms their soul by giving them a false sense of superiority and that's actually where the title of my book the soul of civility comes from because just as incivility is mutually debasing it's mutually harmful civility acts of grace charity and kindness is mutually ennobling and um and we insufficiently appreciate that today. It's really easy to say, like, you know, we have to be willing to do whatever it takes to get the other side. But we don't realize that when we, you know, get the other side, when we own the libs, like, it's not costless. It hurts us, too. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, what will civility do to benefit the people who practice it? I argue in the book that civility is both an inherent good and an instrumental good. So it's an inherent good because treating others with the respect that they are owed by virtue of their human dignity, that is good objectively, full stop, in and of itself. You know, seeing the, seeing, seeing the imprint of the divine in the other and affirming that, that is just objectively a good thing to do. It's its own reward. However, um, I, I talk about in the book that civility is also also an instrumental good. It, it 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 can, as it has been, a tool of social progress in our in our world today. And I, I also I, I borrow from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. that um, he his civility was central, as I define it, was central to his peaceful nonviolent resistance movement that ended Jim Crow laws and, and segregation in, in, in America. Um, he had this process called purification, where he would have people come in and they would, um, who, who wanted to be part of his, his movement, and he would cultivate the disposition of, of as I define, civility. He would cultivate love and affection for fellow citizens. And that love and affection for fellow citizens, people who held 
views of white supremacy, bigoted views about towards African Americans, they that that love for them informed their action. It informed and demanded the letter writing campaigns, the sit-ins, the protests that define peaceful nonviolent resistance. That um, that love and respect said, I respect you enough to confront you with your a- inaccurate view of the world. You are inaccurately seeing and appreciating the dignity and common humanity of all human beings. And I'm going to show you through these actions that you're wrong. And I'm going to, I, I respect you enough. And then, but, but, but it also, civility takes certain action off the table. For example, action of uh, like violence, dehumanizing action, destroying someone's property, ad hominem attacks. That that civility um, demands action sometimes, but also takes certain action off the table. That um, it's it's all about personhood, all about human dignity, and respecting the dignity of, of the human being. So let me try and simplify what I'm what I'm hearing for for some of the benefits uh, that, that that civility would would offer. One, you should feel better about yourself. Um, and and people should like you more, as in you should feel better about yourself because you're treating people well, and um, and uh, in general people like to be treated well, and will do do the same in return. There is some reciprocity there, but you should do it just because it's a good thing to do too. Uh, and I think there are some benefits uh, that you can uh, that you can get from that. Um, I mean, you spend a lot of the time in the book um, trying to valorize and glamorize people. Uh, like your grandmother, who treated other people well, um, why why should we uh, why should we hold, give these people high esteem? Well, I love history, and I think it's so important to learn from the strengths and the mistakes and failures and weaknesses of those that have come before us to help us lead better lives today. That's very much the ethos of Civic Renaissance, my newsletter and intellectual community dedicated to beauty goodness and truth and reviving the wisdom of the past to help us lead better lives today. And I embody that idea in in my in my book that um, I, I celebrate my grandmother, for example. I have this concept that I unpack in the book called the mellifluous echo of the magnanimous soul. So Aristotle in his um in his philosophy gives us this concept of the magnanimous soul, someone who is just so put together, so self-assured that they're self-forgetful. They walk out into the world and just can be fully focused, fully present with others. And that's the magnanimous soul. And my grandmother, she was someone like that and, and someone for whom there was no such thing as a neutral human interaction. Every interaction with others was a supreme gift. It was a profound um blessing that she just relished in. She's like, you know, this is a moment in time I'll never get back. And um, she sought the good of everyone, every person that she encountered. And um, she um, perplexed a lot of people with her brightness and her joy and her zeal to get to know them. People were like, you know, what's the ulterior motive here? But she blessed many, many more. And, and you know, we hear a lot today in our world of, of stories of vicious cycles of generational trauma, one person's self-love, selfishness reverberating across time and across plates in order to, um, and causing harm, untold harm and suffering for those around them. But less often do we hear of stories of great men and women who, through their... Um, through their magnanimity, 
create, put into play virtuous cycles um, that, that, and create with their lines mellifluous echoes that keep on, keep on giving. So this, the, 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 the mellifluous echo of the magnanimous soul, that it doesn't t- t- partake any particular, you know, superpower that we're born with. It, it's instead nurtured, it's cultivated, this, this desire to seek the good of those that we encounter in the, in the everyday marketplaces of life and that we can all be artisans of the common good in, in our everyday um, and that every single, every single um, exchange that we have with another person is, is a gift. Um, we're, we're, we're encountering a being with the imprint of the divine. And my grandmother knew the value and beauty in that. And, and we can too. By the way, is that her picture above you in your office? No, it's not. It's not. This is not. This is this is a friend's office, not oh, my own. Okay. <laughs> All right. Just, it's just kind of curious. All right. Um, so your book bu- your book is filled with all of these lessons um, from historical uh, from people throughout history. Uh, why do you think that that is um, kind of an Im- important piece of evidence that people should consider? Like what all these uh, uh, previous people in the past had to say. Or at least, why do you think uh, this legacy is important to people today? I think history is this untold source of human wisdom that we are too often disconnected from. C.S. Lewis, he called it chronological snobbery. This idea that, you know, we're, we're getting better and better and that we, you know, we're better than the primitive, more savage past and that we don't need those that have come before us in order to live lives better now, that there's nothing the past can teach us. And we just so handicap ourselves. We hamstring ourselves when we take that approach. Um, I love the I love the approach of Plutarch. Plutarch, he was uh, a Roman citizen, but of Greek descent. And he um, put in dialogue the lives of famous Greeks and famous Romans to see what moral lessons can we live that can help us lead our own lives better. And so even though he was Roman, he didn't you know, praise every single Roman um, that he, he uh, wrote a biography of. And even though he was of Greek descent, he didn't just praise the Greeks. Instead, he, he said, okay, where is virtue? Let's celebrate that. Where is vice? Let's condemn that and let's deride these lessons and apply them to our own lives so we can live live better, live better now. And he said he understood the power of storytelling and of the explicitly moral approach to, to history. That's another thing about our current moment. We're very afraid of, of making moral objective claims, like especially in the study in academic disciplines of history today. You know, they want to be objective. They want to, you know, you know they want to weigh pros and cons and um they're afraid of making categorical statements of right or wrong, but we have to. We have to be willing to to, to make statements of right or wrong in our in our own moment today, um, if we are going to um, if we're going to flourish, if we're going to survive as as a species and, and thrive in our own moment now. Wait, now how much of the classics have you read? <laughs> I, you know, certainly not all of them. I'm very much a student of the classics. I'm no expert. In fact, I didn't have a classical education. I, I'm kind of an autodidact. Uh, I've, I've just enjoyed learning about the classics and great books throughout my life. Um, I, I've, in formal schooling, I focused on the Renaissance. I love like modern European history. I was a history major. And so I kind of got 
a view of the classics through the lens of the Renaissance. And then since I've been out of school, I've really enjoyed reading these own texts and learning about these own thinkers and 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 this history on my own after school. I just kind of foreshadowed this is my next uh, my next book idea on autodidactism, why we don't need to be in a classroom or go to school to have to get an education or lead a robust life life for the mind. Yeah, that was actually something that uh, when I came into college, like I wanted to learn something professional because I figured it's like, look, you you can get a classical uh, liberal education just by reading a whole bunch of books and talking with a couple of people. You don't need to pay 20000 a year for uh, for that. I don't know if I'm accurate about that, but uh, uh, I did wind up reading a lot of things outside of the curriculum. Of course, my favorite book being From Dawn to Decadence by Jacques Barzon. I don't know that book. Tell me about it. Uh, Five hundred years. Uh, Five hundred years of Western cultural history. I mean, there's some you'll learn. There's it's so dense. There's so much on every page. Uh, just to begin with, uh, the modern era begins characteristically with a revolution. Um, and he's talking about the Protestant Re- uh, Reformation at, at this point. It, there's just so much you learn. So much it feels like you're pondering over eight hundred pages of forgotten lore. Very much recommended. Um, uh, yes, uh, and Chak Barzan himself is an interesting character. Uh, in parts through uh, through some of his um, his friendship with Lionel Trilling and kind of some of the discussion groups that he had. Longtime Col- uh, Columbia professor. Uh, there's there's all sorts of neat things about Chak uh, 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 Barzan. You should check him out. How do you spell Chak? J A yeah Chak. As in K A C Q U E S. Got it. I think I got his book behind me too, somewhere. Very nice. Yeah, there. <laughs> um, but let's uh, kind of talk about the Overton window because I think right now, like, we have a political world where it's just filled with people who are just trying to overcome the opposition, be uh, be mean. And I think civility would change some of that. So me and my colleagues have championed a lot of policies that ought to have broad appeal that goes beyond partisan politics. And we do participate with um, cross-ideological coalitions to support these things. So we're talking about like eliminating civil asset forfeiture, putting public benefit standards into occupational licensing roles. And we've covered a lot of these issues in the past on this podcast. But one of the reasons why I think that our efforts have been stymied is because Lawmakers don't see a lot of electoral benefits in cross-ideological um, uh, cooperation. So give me some hope. Do you think civility will unlock some of these important but neglected changes? Well, it's an interesting question about the the Overton window because the Overton window, like what is permissible in, in public discourse and, and public life, that is not governed by law. That's governed by mores. It's governed by social norms. It's governed by there's no, you know, Congress doesn't debate the Overton window in, you know, with the budget, the budget discussion, you know, like it's um, it's it's cultural, it's grassroots, it's bottom up. And that um, that's up to us to decide what are we going to tolerate and what are we going not to what are we not going to stand for as a society? Um, there is a role for concertedly changing social norms in society. I, I I also love Dr. King here. He says, how do you tell a just law from an unjust law? Well, 
a just law is one that squares with the moral law. He would say, you know, affirms human dignity and uplifts human personality. An unjust law does not square with the moral law and degrades human personality and, and human dignity. For example, laws that say some humans are, are of more value, more equal than, than others. And the same goes for um, social norms. Like we, we need to uh, critically evaluate our own rituals, our own practices, what we're permitting and, and being intolerant of in, in our society and our, our public discourse and public life and say, do these norms square with our values, our values as Americans of individual liberty, personhood, equality under the law, these, these traditional democratic virtues of, of tolerance? Or do they, um, and if they don't, then we need to discard them. We need to be willing to dismiss them. For example, uh, norms that say only certain people can use this bathroom and this water fountain. That norms that um, refute the dignity and equality of persons. We have to be willing to uh, call out um, norms and, and discard norms that, are, that don't square with, with our values as Americans. And as people who are fundamentally pro-human in nature that we want we want i should think we we all should want to celebrate and affirm the dignity and equality of all persons so there is one norm and i think i've mentioned this before that i would like to uh, to see changed and that is and again like when when we are talking about contentious political matters that we approach uh we approach the issue with the attempt to persuade if you listen to the national political uh, debate, it is a lot about how our opposition must be overcome. And uh, I just don't feel like that is very much respectful of each other's dignity. But And there is there are really good alternatives. Persuasion matters. Persuasion is still politically powerful in a world of uh, divisive partisan politics. And so it's, uh, it seems underappreciated. And, but I think for that to to really matter, you have you have to win, as in civility has to uh, re-enter the public debate as something that is admirable and venerable to um, uh, to practice uh, as we discuss contentious uh, political matters. It, I think today we are very quick to blame, and we woefully underappreciate the power we each have to be part of the solution. In, in in our in our everyday. When I left a very divided government in Washington, DC and moved to Indianapolis, Indiana, where my husband's from originally, uh, a woman came up to me after church one day. We didn't have any friends there. And, and one of our one of my first friends was a woman named Joanna. She came up, up 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 to me after church one day and said, Hi, I'm Joanna. Would you like to porch with us sometime? And I had never heard the word porch used as a verb before but curious we went to her home that day and i realized that joanna is staging a quiet porching revolution from her great big front veranda she had curated people across politics race class geography in town to inhabit a shared space to feel seen and known and loved absent of labels and kind of these superficial differences um and that was revolutionary. That will heal our, our broken world. Joanna is saying, with how she's living her life, I am going to refocus on what I can control. I cannot focus on what's happening in Washington, what's happening across the world. I, but I can 
focus on myself and I'm going to, I'm going to choose to focus on making my community better, my family stronger and brighter. And that's what she's doing. And that, that will change our world. The save applies to your question about how we use tools in our public discourse. How do we, you know, engage with others virtually? How do we, how do we, so um, I have this I idea. some efforts around called cultivating or try to reinvigorate. Oh, sorry. Sorry. You're breaking up for a second. Sorry, I have this idea uh, in my book called Cultivating Our Digital Garden. You know, in, in our, our online life, you know, how, we can't focus on how others are using social media and these new tools that can sow harm and, and, and division in our world, but we can control how we use them and we can use them to create brightness and um, beauty in, in, in our world. Um, so I've done that with, with Civic Renaissance, my newsletter an intellectual community dedicated to beauty, goodness, truth, and reviving the wisdom of the past to help us lead better lives. It's a community of 50,000 people, and I invite anyone listening to, to join over at civic-renaissance.com. And it is an opportunity, it's my opportunity, to embody the change I want to see in the world. Um, like, I can't control what other people are doing on their platforms, on their substacks, on their newsletters, but I can control mine. And I hope to, by embodying these things, I can both attract other people that care about these values and maybe make a few converts along the way as well to to loving wisdom and beauty and, and the wisdom of the past. Uh, so I think that's interesting because I see a lot of uh, attempts in the public debate right now to try to you know bring civility back and I'm perpetually frustrated with them. Like one of the most frequent ones I see is like, all right, let's um, Let's exchange news sources and and uh, for for a month and then talk about it. And it's like I just don't feel like reading different news sources that say the the other side is worthy of uh, of overcoming is a good way to increase civility. Uh, same thing with kind of some discussion groups where it's just like, look, we got to have some shared values, some shared understandings, some uh, some places where we can offer each other mutual respect before we get into the contentious things. And so okay. I. I that's exactly right. That that's one thing I learned from Joanna's friend Port that too often when we encounter difference, we want to just go right to the difference and hash it out. And and again, we make these mental shortcuts about people, like because of their skin color, because of, you know, one thing about them, we know, we think we know everything there is to know about them. You know, who they voted for or what their view on one issue or where they live. Like there's a political valence, a political dimension to virtually everything today. And um but that's what was beautiful about about Joanna's front porch, that people had the opportunity to get to know one another just as humans first, as human beings first, and um, to, to sow that those seeds of trust and friendship that might later allow for really important conversations across difference later. But today, we're only doing the hard conversations all the time, and we're, we're, we're undermining our public discourse and our democracy by not having that basic trust and affection first. All right, let's say you've won. Civility is now in vogue. We treat each other with respect and dignity. How different is the world? Well, that um, that will never happen, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, this is a timeless human problem. It's not. It's not going away. No politician. No policy. No one technology has uh, caused our challenge with civility right now. And no one public leader, no policy, no book is going to solve it either. 
Um, you know, if if that were to happen, we could imagine a, a an unprecedented moment of 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 human flourishing, of 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 um, a vibrant outpouring of human potential, creative human potential, where we're just in total harmony and unity and joy together. Like that, and we get glimpses of that right now, where we we have moments where we feel seen and known and loved. And we have moments where we are able to have constructive dialogue across deep difference. And we have moments of, of pure joy with others. And we're like, okay, you know, this this thing called life together is hard, but it's worth it. This is the highest and best life. And the problem is that when we insufficiently cultivate those moments or, or pay attention to them when they're present, that the, the, the difficulty of life together seems to define our lives and, and we become more and more tempted to just give up on it altogether because life together is hard. It's grating. It's annoying. People are selfish and, and thoughtless and bothersome. And I mean, it's also very vulnerable for me to have written a book on this topic as well because I fall short of my own ideals every day. And I hope that that doesn't undermine my ideals. It's just my attempt to, I, I'm all the more encouraged to to double down and try again the next day. Uh, but that is the problem of our worlds today. We see people falling short. We condemn them. We blame them. We want to tear it all down, tear down the ideals, you know, um, throw the baby out with the bathwater. But instead of saying, you know, we're all going to fall short countless times each day. And that re-upping our commitment to this joint project of living well together, that's what our civilization, our democracy, our society, it depends on that. Lexi, I hope your work makes it easier for us to shift the Overton Window. Thanks for having me, James. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Overton Window, a podcast from the Mackinac Center. Please subscribe and rate. For more, check us out at www.mackinac.org. That's Mackinac with a C, like the island.